0: Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris Internet Radio. This program is being pre-recorded for Friday, August 6th, 2021. Right now, it is Thursday evening, and I am pre-recording because tomorrow evening and Saturday, I will be with the Florida League of the South in Lake City. This is Adamic Eternity. The Greatest Discovery. Here I am going to make a solitary presentation on a subject which I've discussed quite often in many of our longer series of biblical commentaries. To me, there is nothing more disappointing than seeing an identity Christian, or at least someone who professes to understand Christian identity truths, who still carries the baggage of the denominational churches and their false doctrines. Doctrines which were constructed centuries ago by a priesthood which sought little else but to maintain its own control over the minds of the people, usually in concert with various governments. This is especially true where those doctrines are persistently maintained by such Christians, but are clearly contrary to the plain word of Scripture. So one result of false church doctrine is that we have white men who seek to condemn one another to the fires of eternal destruction for some sin which they themselves think is is too horrible to forgive, or which is far more grievous than their own sins. Yet only Yahweh God can judge men, because only God knows the hearts of men, which is to say that only He can know why men did certain things at certain times, rather than merely just what they did. And all the factors which drove them to do such things in the first place. To understand that, he must know everything that a particular man had learned throughout his own life, which led him to make such choices. We naturally make decisions based on what we believe is right or wrong at any given time or at what we th- or or by what we think benefits ourselves and how many of us were taught perfectly or were even taught sufficiently quite often we do not even realize the gravity of our own errors the consequences of our own sins for those around us or even for ourselves So speaking of his own sin, Paul of Tarsus had exclaimed in Romans chapter 7, that I am a miserable man, who will deliver me from this body of death? When Paul, working for the priests of the temple in Jerusalem, had delivered some of his own kinsmen to be executed... He believed that he was acting justly in defense of what he thought was the truth. So once he had learned differently, he later admitted to having been a murderer. On account of this man, more than any of the other apostles, We are Christians today because Yahweh had judged him differently than many of us would judge him today. Before we begin, I must first reassert, I say reassert because I've asserted it quite often in these 1400 podcasts I've done, there is no biblical revelation which is meant for any nations other than the children of Israel as it was the intention of Yahweh to let all other Adamic nations go their own way. And he called Abraham alone out of the resulting mess, giving his truth exclusively to the children of Israel. And of course, other races are not even a factor in all of this ancient and biblical history. So we read in Exodus chapter three, verse six, where Yahweh spoke and Moses reacted to what he said. Moreover, he said, I am the God of the, of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look upon God. Then later in the 147th Psalm, We read, He showeth his word unto Jacob, his statutes and judgments unto Israel. He has not dealt so with any nation, and as for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise ye Yahweh. The writer of that psalm was happy, was thrilled, praised God that other nations had not received his statutes, and his judgments. As a digression, I may have sometimes attributed those words to David. In fact, I'm sure I have. As the psalm is unattributed in the King James Version, David seems to be the default. But I have recently found that in the Septuagint, and I probably read this years ago and forgot it, but in the Septuagint, in the the 147th psalm, it is attributed to the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, who were both in Jerusalem together as the second temple was being rebuilt by Zerubbabel after the return to Jerusalem of certain Judeans in 520 BC. This election of the children of Israel which, of course, has never changed, in spite of the doctrines of the denominational churches, and therefore it remains in effect today, does not diminish the value or existence of Adamic men who are not of Israel, even if they suffered temporally for the paths which their ancient ancestors had chosen. There are clear passages in both the Old and New Testament scriptures which inform the children of Israel that the entire Adamic race shall ultimately be preserved by God. However, preservation or salvation may refer to either the preservation of one's temporal life, one's life in this world, or the preservation of the eternal life which is through the Adamic spirit. And the two, the two types of preservation, must be distinguished in scripture. Paul understood this distinction, where speaking of a sinner, as it is recorded in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he demanded that the Christian assembly at Corinth put the fornicator out of the assembly, and he wrote, to deliver such a one unto Satan for destruction of the flesh, that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Quoting the King James Version. Yahweh God may forgive our sins, but we must separate ourselves from unrepentant sinners, lest we suffer in their punishments. That's the announcement to the children of Israel, my people of the fall of mystery Babylon in Revelation chapter 18, come out from among them, lest ye suffer her punishments. In spite of the fact that the other branches of our Adamic race had never received the word of Yahweh our God, certain beliefs Of our first fathers must have been passed down to them from the beginning. So the Sumerians, Egyptians, Assyrians, Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, and Romans, and later the Scythians and Celts, according to the Greeks and Romans, had all originally believed in the continued existence of the spirit after the death of a man. And in Hades, or the underworld of the dead. However, as it appears in the surviving literature of those nations, most of those nations had never expressed any hope of existence for men beyond an eternity in Hades. So because the revelations of God were only given to the children of Israel, They are therefore presented in a context which continually refers to Israel alone. Yet the other Adamic nations had traditions which are seen to have been founded on anciently accepted truths as it is revealed, as they are revealed, I should say, in the scriptures which emerged many centuries later. There is a promise found in Genesis chapter 3, that by clinging to the tree of life, the Adamic man would live forever, a promise which transcends the children of Israel themselves. To keep the path to that tree of life, cherubs and a flaming flaming sword were placed in the way. It is often said in the denominational churches that the cherubs were to prevent man from approaching the tree of life, but that is also a false doctrine. Rather, the cherubs were placed in the path in order to preserve the path, to make certain that man could once again find it. And we have explained the accomplishment of that preservation of the path in the cherubs which were atop the Ark of the Covenant where the law was kept. The keeping of the law was accomplished through the relationship which Yahweh God had established with the children of Israel. This did not happen because of the accomplishments of Israel, but rather it happened in spite of the sins of Israel and according to the accomplishments of the word of God. The promise in Genesis chapter 3 verse 22 reads thusly, And Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil, And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. But where it says the man, it is ha adam in Hebrew, referring to a particular singular man, the first man, Adam. So either the promise applies to Adam alone, whereby we should remain ignorant of its fulfillment, or it pertains to Adam and all of his collective descendants, which is the entire race of Adam, and not merely some small portion of that race. Therefore, if the race of Adam can eat of the tree of life and live forever as a remedy to Adam's fall, and its inevitable consequence in death. Then we must also admit that the Adamic man was initially created to be immortal. Of that, we find one profession in chapter 2 of the Wisdom of Solomon, which says, for God created man to be immortal, and made him to be an image of his own eternity. Nevertheless, through envy of the devil came death into the world, and they that do hold of his side do find it. There is another profession in the words of Job, in Job chapter 19, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and that he shall stand at the later day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. Later the Apostle John would inform us in his first epistle that for this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Christ is the tree of life which all of the children of Adam shall eventually embrace. There is another necessary digression in relation to this, which is the nature of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam was given only one law, which is not to eat of that tree. And when his wife ate of it, he accepted her in her sin, and therefore, whether he had joined her or not, he is just as guilty as she. As Paul explains in Romans chapter 5, Sin was in the world before the law, but sin is not imputed, meaning it is not punished where there is no law. However, Adam was punished in Genesis chapter 3, and the men and women who committed fornication with the Nephilim were punished in Genesis chapter 6 evidently because they all broke the same law, the only law which was given up to that time, by which we know exactly what it means to eat of the tree. The eating of that tree represented fornication. If the man clings to the tree of life, which is the tree which Yahweh God had created, and eats from that tree alone, then he can live forever. But the eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was fornication with the Nephilim, as we learn in Genesis chapter 6. So for that same reason, the law which the cherubs had guarded is the path to the tree of life. And keeping that law, by not committing fornication or adultery, both terms which describe race mixing and other sexual sins, a man can live forever. For that reason, the Apostle John wrote in chapter 3 of his first epistle, that whosoever is born of God Does not commit sin, for his seed remains in him. For his seed remains in him. He is still of God's original creation. The seed of Adam remains in him. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. Adam was the son of God, as we learn in Luke chapter 3. The children of Israel are the children of God, being descendants of Adam as we learn throughout scripture. And as John also professed in that same epistle, it is not that they do not sin, but if their seed remains in them, meaning that if they are of Adam and not bastards, then their sin will not be imputed to them, Because Christ is a propitiation for their sin, as John also wrote in chapter 2 of that same epistle. So the law also states that a bastard shall not enter into the congregation of Yahweh. And following that, there is language which says 10th generation, but actually means forever. Because... The ninth generation of a bastard is still a bastard. Start counting over. So in spite of the grievous nature of their own sins, where they had committed fornication with the Nephilim, the apostles, the Apostle Peter describes those who died in the flood as having received the gospel of Christ in Hades and they were therefore freed from the prison of hell. This is found in 1 Peter chapters 3 and 4, where the apostle wrote, Because Christ also suffered once for all sins, the just on behalf of the unjust, in order that he may lead you to Yahweh. Indeed, dying in the flesh, but being made to live by the Spirit. At which also, going, he proclaimed to those spirits in prison who had at one time been disobedient when the forbearance of Yahweh awaited in the days of Noah's preparing the vessel in which a few, that is, eight souls, had been preserved through the water. So that's a clear reference to the spirits of the men and women who died in the flood of Noah. Which also now a representation saves you immersion, not a putting away of the filth of the flesh, but a demand of a good conscience for Yahweh. Through the resurrection of Yahshua Christ, we are to be baptized in his death. Romans chapter 6 who is walking in heaven at the right hand of Yahweh, messengers and authorities and powers being made subject to him. So, Peter's attestation is that Christ even preached the gospel to the spirits of those who died in the flood of Noah, who were the most infamous sinners of the ancient world. Then in chapter 4 of the same epistle, He added, speaking of the sinners of his own time, for enough of the time has passed, perpetuating the will of the heathens, having walked in licentiousness, passions, drunkenness, revelries, and lawless idolatries, while they, a reference to those pagan nations, while they are astonished They blaspheme at you're not running together in the same excess profligacy. We see that same phenomenon today where all of these debauched and corrupted sodomites and lesbians and, and sinners of the world hate Christians for not engaging in the same sins and for not accepting their sins. And Peter says, they shall give an account to him who holds ready to judge the living and the dead. Indeed, for this also, Peter is making a reference back to what he had said in chapter 3 of this epistle. For this also, to the dead the gospel has been announced, that indeed they may be judged like men in the flesh, although they're already dead, they died before Christ, but live like Yahweh in the Spirit. Likewise, there is the attestation of Christ himself that even the Assyrians and the Sabians would be resurrected from the dead, which is found in Matthew chapter 12, chapter 12, verses 41 and 42, I won't repeat it here, but he talks about the resurrection of the men of Nineveh and the resurrection of the Queen of the South, who represents the people of the Sabians. Therefore, even in death, man has an opportunity to face his maker and come to grips with the truth, by which he may live. So we read in Isaiah chapter 45, A passage which Paul had also cited in Romans chapter 14, where the word of God says, I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, meaning it will definitely come true because it's the will of God, that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. So, ultimately, whether in life or in death, every Adamic man shall turn to Christ. Ostensibly, Yahweh knowing all things, he knew that the angels would rebel against him before it happened, and he knew that the Adamic man which he created would also fall in that rebellion before it happened as it is described in Genesis chapters 3 and 6. So for that reason, Christ had described himself as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world when he gave his revelation to John. Revelation chapter 13, if you must. Knowing that man would fall, the vanity which man came into in his fall, must have been the plan of God from the beginning. So we read in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, another work of the wisdom of Solomon, in verse 13. And I gave my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. This sore travail has God given to the sons of man to be exercised therewith. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, all the works of vanity. And behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. So the vanity to which men were subjected is an exercise from God, according to Solomon. This same phenomenon is also expressed in Romans chapter 8 where Paul of Tarsus wrote in reference to the particular Adamic creation and he said, and we can tell from the later end of the chapter that he's referring to the Adamic creation as opposed to anything else which Yahweh God created. And he said, Therefore, I consider that the happenstances of the present time are not of value. Looking forward to the future honor to be revealed to us. Perhaps they could read in us. Indeed, in earnest anticipation, the creation awaits the revelation of the sons of Yahweh. To transientness or vanity. The creation was subjected, not willingly, but on account of he, meaning God, who subjected it in expectation that also the creation itself shall be liberated from the bondage of decay into the freedom of the honor of the children of Yahweh. For we know that the whole creation laments the whole Adamic creation, laments together and travails together until then. With this, along with Solomon's profession in Ecclesiastes, we must conclude that Yahweh God himself, through the narrative presented in Scripture, had purposely subjected man to vanity for the purposes of his instruction men shall learn to distinguish between good and evil on account of their sins. So if all, quote-unquote, bad men were to die forever, and if only, quote-unquote, good men lived, where is the lesson? There is no lesson, but there must be a lesson in truth. There is no man who can boast of his own goodness. As David wrote in the 143rd Psalm, For in thy sight shall no living man be justified. And as Paul wrote in Romans chapter 3, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And as the Apostle John wrote in his first epistle, speaking of Yahshua Christ. If we should say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we should admit our sins, he is trustworthy and just, that he would remit the sins for us, and would cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we should say that we have not sinned, We would make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Because only God can be a just judge of men. The Apostle James had also warned in chapter 4 of his epistle, Do not slander one another, brethren. He slandering a brother or condemning his brother slanders the law and condemns the law. Now, if you condemn the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. Now, who are you who is judging him near to you? Who are you who is judging him? his neighbor, that word neighbor being defined in Leviticus chapter 19 as one of your own people, one of the children of your people. Yet Christians cannot tolerate evil. So Paul of Tarsus did not advise the Corinthians to stone, to condemn the fornicator in their midst, but rather he told them, To put him out of the assembly, where citing the law, he instructed them and asked, What is it to me to judge those outside? Not at all should you judge those within you or those among you, but those outside, Yahweh judges. You will expel the wicked from amongst yourselves having two or three witnesses, and finding some fault in a brother, you're not really slandering him. James was speaking about slanderers. So you put them out of the assembly. And that was the context in which Paul had advised them earlier in that chapter, chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, to deliver such a one unto Satan, unto the adversary, perhaps the pagans or the Jews outside of the assembly of God, for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus, citing the King James Version. So where he had encouraged putting a sinner out of the assembly, Paul saw that as delivering the sinner to Satan or the adversary. That example also serves as a model for us today. This should never change in Christianity. We do not have to like sinners, and we do not have to have fellowship with them. But we must understand that while they shall certainly be punished in this world, they nevertheless have the same eternal life as the rest of the Adamic race. If they are Indeed, children of Adam, so we should be careful of what we pray for and always hold out the possibility of their repentance. Paul set an example in reference to that in First Timothy chapter 1, where he was encouraging his younger fellow worker and he said, I commit this command to you, child Timothy in accordance with those prophecies which have led the way before you. This is not an example, it's another example. That by them you may soldier a good battle, having faith and a good conscience, which refusing to accept, some have been shipwrecked in regard to the faith, of which are Hymenius and Alexandrus whom I have surrendered to the adversary in order that they would be disciplined not to blaspheme. So Paul had put these men out of his company, anticipating that God would punish them for their sin. The same may stand as an example of those who need to learn, those today who need to learn not to commit adultery or steal, or sodomize, or transgress in any other manner. When the children of Israel sinned against Yahweh, and he finally sent them off into captivity, he was essentially doing that same thing, delivering his sinful children into the hands of their adversaries for their chastisement. But in spite of the gravity of the sins of the ancient children of Israel, who, having followed the ways of Canaan, had even caused their own children to be burnt alive in the sacrifices to Baal, or Moloch. They were promised salvation without further qualification. One place we read this is in Isaiah chapter 28. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with hell we are at agreement. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, it shall not come unto us. That's the children of Israel. Yahweh putting those words into the mouth of the children of Israel, because that was their attitude. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, it shall not come unto us. For we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood falsehood have we hid ourselves because the children of Israel said those things. Therefore, thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation stone, this is a messianic prophecy, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, he that believes shall not make haste. Judgment also will I lay to the line, And righteousness to the plummet. And the hell shall sweep away the refuge of lies. And the waters shall overflow the hiding place. And your covenant with death shall be disannulled. And your agreement with hell shall not stand. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, then ye shall be trodden down by it. They will be trodden down, but they will live in the spirit, even if they will be punished in the flesh. This water, I'm sorry, this was later revealed to have been a messianic prophecy. And it is in Christ that their covenant with death was ultimately disannulled, even if they themselves punished in the flesh. We have another witness, I should say suffered in the flesh. We have another witness in Hosea chapter 13, where we read in verse 9, O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself, they made that covenant with death, but in me is thine help. I, meaning Yahweh God, as Yahshua Christ, I will be thy king. Where is any other that he may save thee in all thy cities? And they went off into captivity. And thy judges, of whom thou sayest, Give me a king and princes, as they demanded a a king and princes in 1 Samuel chapter 8, I believe. That was the beginning of their sin, when the children of Israel demanded a king like all the other nations and rejected Yahweh God as their king. So, we read in Hosea chapter 13, verse 11, I gave thee a king in mine anger, and took him away in my wrath. But in the mercy of God, we read in verse 12, The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is hid. The sorrows of a travailing woman shall come upon him. He is an unwise son for he should not stay long in the place of the breaking forth of children. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be thy plagues. O grave, I will be thy destruction. Repentance shall be hid from mine eyes. So instead of punishing Israel, For their sin, Yahweh had promised to destroy death and the grave instead, which is absolutely contrary to any reasonable expectation. The destruction of death and the grave and the redemption and cleansing of sins which has been promised to all of the children of Israel, must result in the restoration to eternal life of all of the children of Adam, or the works of the devil are not destroyed by Christ. If one single Adamic man is lost, then Christ has not accomplished his mission. So we read in Isaiah chapter 45, that in Yahweh shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. Paul of Tarsus understood the implications of this promise, and therefore he wrote in Isaiah chapter 11, I'm sorry, in Romans chapter 11, I keep reading ahead of myself and screwing myself up, we... Paul wrote in Romans chapter 11, where he had also cited Isaiah chapter 59, verse 20. And he said, in Romans eleven twenty-six 26 and 27, And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Sion the Deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. So now, in this context, we shall condense some of our January 2015 commentary on chapter 15 of Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians, which we had entitled Eternal Life Through the Spirit. Eternal Life Through the Spirit is the title of part 18 of our commentary on 1 Corinthians. Before I begin on this, it lasts for a couple of pages, I have a digression. When I first realized everything that I'm speaking here this evening, when I was back in prison, maybe it was... 2002, 2003, 2004, I really don't remember. It was a couple of years into my Christian identity studies that I finally came to this realization of the true message of scripture, that your origin is definitely your destiny and that you can't do anything, either through being good or through sin, to change your destiny. When I first came to that realization, and I was teaching it to other men in prison. One of them said to me, so I could sin all I want. I can sin all I want. It doesn't matter. I could be as good as I want or as bad as I want. It doesn't matter. And I'll still be saved. And I said to him that if you're going to have no reward in heaven, you just told me how that's going to happen. Because there's salvation and there's eternal life, but then there's also reward. And that's a totally different subject. And Christ, in his parables and his many words in the gospel, he teaches that same thing, but it's hidden in some of the unfortunate translations. Some of the poor choices of language, such as calling Gehenna hell, and calling Hades hell, and not distinguishing between them when they both mean two totally different things. And there's other language that's obscured, or I should say obfuscated. Obfuscated. That's a word I first learned when I began to learn how to program computers, Obfuscated, meaning purposely clouded over and hidden, purposely veiled so that its true intention is not apparent or readily apparent without a lot of study. There's obfuscation in the translations that prevent us from seeing some clear distinctions in Scripture. That's unfortunate, but they did it. Perhaps that was also the plan of Yahweh God. Perhaps he didn't want these truths to come out in 1611 or in 1540 something. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul made a very plain and concise statement where he said in verse 22, For as in Adam all die, meaning all of the descendants of Adam, the entire race of Adam. Even so, in Christ shall all be made alive. And there's no qualifications, there's no exceptions to that. Later in the same chapter, he explained this phenomenon further. And he made an allegorical comparison in 1 Corinthians 15, 39, in verse 39 of chapter 15, where he said, Not all flesh is the same flesh. And compared that of man, meaning Adamic man, to that of beasts and other creatures. Where he also explained that even different spiritual bodies may have a greater glory than others. Then he proceeded to describe the resurrection promised to the children of Adam, and said, in verse 42, In this way also is the restoration of the dead. It is sown in decay. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in honor. It is sown in weakness. Paul is making allegories of the vanity of the flesh, the fact that all flesh is as grass. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Now, the King James Version has language there that is not found in the oldest manuscripts, which corrupts the meaning of this passage. But Paul says, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual, meaning a spiritual body. So, we see that if there is a natural Adamic body, There is also a spiritual Adamic body, and the spiritual body is sown along with the natural. So, the spirit must be an innate aspect of the Adamic man, of the nature of the Adamic man. Therefore, it is evident that every Adamic man has an eternal spirit from Yahweh God. Here, Paul has informed us that the existence of one implies the existence of the other. It really assures the existence of the other. In this manner, we also read in the 17th Psalm, As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. David saying that when he is resurrected, it will be with the likeness of God. So Paul then made an analogy between the first Adam and Christ. And he said, and just as it is written, The first man, Adam, came into a living soul, the last Adam into a life-producing spirit. But the spiritual was not first, rather the natural, then the spiritual, the first man from out of earth, of soil, the second man from out of heaven, because the spirit comes from heaven. Here Paul paraphrased Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 where it says, and man, or Adam, the Adamic man, became a living soul. This statement is actually true of both Adam and Christ, but one is an analogy for the first, and the other is an analogy for the second. In Christian identity circles, Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 has long been interpreted as the act by which Yahweh had imparted his spirit into the Adamic man. However, if Yahweh is a spirit, then his image is spiritual, as we see in chapter 2 of the Wisdom of Solomon, which we have already cited. And the imparting of the spirit is therefore represented in Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 and Genesis chapter 5 verse 3 as well. The wisdom of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 23. For God created man to be immortal and made him to be an image of his own eternity. So the image of God is an image of his eternity. I've seen kinists and certain more traditional Christian circles, such as Roman Catholics and Orthodox Greeks, argue about the nature of the imago dei as they call it the image of god imago dei being latin they have to use a latin term so that they sound more intelligent than they really are that's the truth so that they sound smart they use these fancy latin terms they spend a lot more time memorizing fancy latin terms than they do studying scripture in my <laughs> informed opinion. So, the truth is that the Amago Dei, the image of God, is the image of his own eternity. And that's the image in which the Adamic man was made. The likeness of God is another story. The image of God, according to Solomon, is the image of his own eternity. His own eternity. And that's the image which man in which man was created, and that's Genesis 1, 26, and Genesis chapter 5, verse 3. Although it's, it's symbolic in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, that in that act, Yahweh bestowed upon the Adamic man his eternal spirit, it's clear that the eternal spirit, according to Paul of Tarsus in First Corinthians chapter 15, and I could say in Wisdom of Solomon chapter 2 verse 23, that eternal spirit is his image, and that's an innate aspect of the creation of the Adamic man, that he was created in that image. But Paul was not referring to Christ alone, where he referred to the last Adam, or the second man. But rather, he was making an analogy which referred to the dual nature of the Adamic man, who bears the flesh of the earthly, but whose body contains the spirit of Yahweh from heaven. Adam had the gift of the spirit of Yahweh, but here Paul had used him as a type for the fleshly man. Christ is Yahweh God incarnate, who took upon himself the seed of Abraham, according to Paul himself in hebrews two sixteen so that he could be firstborn among many brethren, according to Paul in Romans chapter eight verse twenty nine and that's a claim which only God can make. And Paul had used the essence of Christ as a type for the spiritual aspect of the Adamic man in that analogy. Here Paul wrote that the spiritual body is sown in decay, which is a natural body that comes from a fleshly seed, but it is raised in in incorruption because it is immortal even after the natural body dies off because... All flesh is as grass. So we see that the same Adamic seed, which produces the natural body, also produces the spiritual body. Furthermore, if there is a natural body, a natural Adamic body, according to Paul, then there is a spiritual Adamic body. But only Yahshua Christ who is Yahweh God incarnate in the flesh, preceded the Adamic man apart from the natural body. That each Adamic man or woman is born from above is fully evident because, as the Apostle John says in chapter 3 of his first epistle, Whosoever is born of God does not commit sin, for his seed remains in him. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. So the spirit which is from above is transmitted through the seed at conception in the lawful union of an Adamic man and an Adamic woman. In this regard, the Apostle Peter, in the first chapter of his first epistle, had described being engendered. The King James Version really screws this one up. Being engendered, meaning bred, from above, not from corruptible parentage. The word is spora there, not sperma. Sperma, to the Greeks, relates to offspring. It's seed which relates to offspring. But spora, to the Greeks, is seed which relates to parentage, or the source of sperma, or offspring. Today, we have spores and sperm, but we don't use those words the way the ancient Greeks had used those words. Spora refers to parentage, whereas sperma refers to offspring. So that word spora in the Christogenian New Testament is parentage, not seed, so that it's more explicitly defined being engendered, or bred, from above, not from corruptible parentage, but from incorruptible, according to the law. Peter says, by the word of Yahweh, who lives and abides, that is, according to the law. If the Adamic man is to maintain the integrity of the creation of God, then he is to maintain his own racial integrity because only the Adamic race was imparted this incorruptible spirit as a component of its genetic seed. Therefore, when Cain was expelled from the garden of God, Adam bore a son whom he called Seth as a replacement for Abel, and in Genesis 5, Genesis chapter 5, verse 3, the scripture makes certain to tell us that Seth was a son in his own likeness after his image, contrary to Cain. The other so called races do not have the spirit, and neither do bastards, who are broken cisterns, born of corruptible parentage, because not all of their ancestors were kind after kind with Adam, flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone, according to the profession of Adam himself in Genesis chapter 2. That is what Peter meant when. He described being born from incorruptible parentage by the word of God. Continuing with Paul's explanation in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 48, and he's still in his analogy, As he of soil, such as those who are also of soil, and as he in heaven, such as those also who are in heaven. And just as, here Paul puts it together, we have borne the likeness of that of soil, we shall also bear the likeness of that of heaven. In Adam's analogy, I'm sorry, I'm screwed up again reading ahead. In Paul's analogy, Adam is of soil. In spite of his having the spirit of God and Christ is of heaven, his flesh, his being the fleshly incarnation, Yahweh God. These represent the two natures of the Adamic man. First, the fleshly, and then the spiritual. Here, Paul of Tarsus is only teaching the plain facts of Scripture, since this is the order of creation as it is explained in the book of Genesis. As Paul had already said, If there is a natural Adamic body, then there is a spiritual Adamic body. Now Paul makes another statement, which actually means something quite different than how the church doctrines interpret it. it. But this I say, brethren, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50. But this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood are not able to inherit the kingdom of Yahweh. "'Nor does decay inherit incorruption. "'Without that spirit which Yahweh has imparted to the Adamic race, "'which is what makes a man born from above, "'then one will not inherit the kingdom of heaven.' For this reason did Christ tell Nicodemus, that unless a man should be born from above, he is not able to see the kingdom of Yahweh, as it is recorded in John chapter 3. As Paul describes here, the Adamic race bears the flesh of the earthly, but also has the spirit from heaven. And each and every Adamic man and woman will therefore bear the image of the heavenly being born from above. Or I should say, having been born from above. The proponents of church doctrines would claim that a man won't be saved simply because he is white, because of flesh and blood, which is true. I agree. Rather, a man shall be saved, simply because his seed is in him, because he is a true child of Adam, and therefore he is a true child of God, who has that spirit through which the resurrection is possible, as Paul explains here in this chapter, and as John had attested in his first epistle. If you're a bastard, if you're of mixed race, if you're of any other race besides Adam, you don't have that spirit. And flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Only those with the spirit can inherit the kingdom of God. And you happen to have that spirit if you are truly white. Not all whites are truly white, unfortunately. In fact, a lot of people think that Jews are white, and they are actually devils. They're certainly not white. So on account of that, Paul then said, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all fall asleep, but we shall all be changed. In an instant, in a dart of an eye, with the last trumpet, for it shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. In 1st Enoch, chapter 49, from Richard Lawrence's translation, it's a little easier to read than the translation of R.H. Charles. In those days, the saints and the chosen shall undergo a change, the light of day shall rest upon them, and the splendor and glory of the saints shall be changed. The question is often posed, which asks, What the children of God shall be like in the restoration? or resurrection, if you will. But the Apostle John said in chapter 3 of his first epistle, Beloved, now we are children of Yahweh, and not yet has it been made manifest what we shall be. We know that if he is made manifest, we shall be like him, since we shall see him just as he is. Remember that 17th Psalm that I had cited earlier where David hoped to awaken to be in his image. So we really cannot answer the question any better than John. Now, in reference to the vanity of the fleshly body, Paul says, and I'm still in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this time it's verse 53, this decay wants to be clothed in incorruptibility, and this mortal to be clothed in immortality. And when this decay shall it put on incorruptibility, and this mortal shall it put on immortality, then the word that has been written shall come to pass. Death has been swallowed in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? At the end of verse 54, Paul quoted from Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8, and in verse 55, he quoted from Hosea chapter 13, verse 14. We have already cited the passage from Hosea. In Isaiah chapter 25, we read from verse 5, Thou shalt bring down the noise of strangers as the heat in a dry place. Even the heat with the shadow of a cloud, the branch of the terrible one shall be brought low, the fall of the palace of strangers. And in this mountain shall Yahweh of hosts make unto all people a feast of fat things, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of wines on the lees well refined. And he will destroy this mountain, the face of the covering, cast over all people, and the veil that is spread over all nations. And he will swallow up death in victory. And Yahweh God will wipe, the, wipe away the tears from off all faces. And the rebuke of his people shall he take away from off all the earth, for Yahweh has spoken it. And as for the noise of strangers... The purpose of Christ, as it is explained in Luke chapter 1, is to save the children of Israel from all of their enemies, so there won't be any strangers left. Similar to that promise in Isaiah, we read in Revelation chapter 21, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. And there was no more sea, there were no more strangers. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, Yahshua Christ, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all the tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Of course, there's many aspects from which I may discuss this passage, but we are focused here on the eternity of the Adamic spirit. The promises of overcoming death are directly related to the immortality of the spirit of Yahweh God, which he had instilled within the Adamic man. And in that sense, death has always been overcome, although we do not perceive it in this life. The serpent had told Eve, Ye shall not surely die. But when she transgressed, she faced death. And both she and Adam did die in her flesh. However, in Christ, the works of the devil are destroyed. 1 John 3, verse 8. Because our Adamic race is indeed eternal, as that is how Yahweh God had created it. Likewise, Paul of Tarsus wrote, of the complete salvation in Christ for the Adamic race, the entire Adamic race, in Romans chapter 5, where he said, and I will read from verse 12, and this will be another lengthy citation, but should not, I'm sorry, for this reason, I was reading from verse 13, I can't look away from the paper, I'm sorry, for this reason, just as by one man sin entered into the world and by that sin death and in that manner death has passed through all men on account that all have sinned and the sentence isn't completed yet but we will make some comments the one man is adam and saying all men Paul refers to all of adam's descendants without exception there are even there are even so-called identity preachers who try to make exceptions to this in their own judgment. That's not righteous. That's not the judgment of God. Paul said all men without exception. Now he makes a parenthetical remark. For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin was not accounted there not being law. That's why Cain wasn't executed for killing Abel. But death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not committed a sin resembling the transgression of Adam, who is an image of the future. Where Paul said that death came even to those who did not sin in the same manner as Adam, it proves that Adam's sin was both tangible and grievous because some clowns want to say that Adam only committed a thought crime. He only had a bad thought, which is a lie. Adam committed a tangible sin. But that same Adam is an image of the future, as he was the first to have borne that eternal life for which his race was created. So he is an image of what is to come for all of his race continuing with Paul in Romans chapter 15 but should not as was the transgression in that manner also be the favor if indeed if in the transgression of one many die meaning Adam much greater is the favor of Yahweh and the gift in favor which is of the one man Yahshua Christ, in which many have great advantage. So, as Paul will explain, in the sin of one man, all of the Adamic race faced death. All Adamic men faced death. And in the favor of one man, all Adamic men will have life. So he makes a rhetorical question, and we continue with verse 16. And not then, by one having sinned as a gift? Indeed, the fact is that judgment of a single one is for condemnation. But the favor is from many transgressions into a judgment of acquittal. The condemnation of one man is Christ himself, who died for the sins of the race of Adam. So Paul continues in verse 17. For if in the transgression of one, death has taken reign through that one, much more is the advantage of the favor and the gift of justice they are receiving. In life they will reign through the one, Joshua Christ. And that is the apparent end of his parenthetical remark, which he began in verse 13. So, with verse 18. So then, as that one transgression is for all men for a sentence of condemnation, in this manner, then through one decision of judgment for all men is for a judgment of life. And the one transgression is the transgression of Adam. And the one decision of judgment is the decision of Yahweh God incarnate. As Christ to die, having accepted responsibility for the sins of the man which he created. In this, it is evident that there are different levels of abstract reasons for the crucifixion of Christ on behalf of both the children of Israel in particular and the Adamic race as a whole. Therefore, if you are a child of Adam, it has already been determined by God that you shall have eternal life, and you have no say in the matter, and no control over your own destiny, either by your sin or by your own will. Now Paul repeats himself in different words, strengthening his intended meaning from verse 19 of the chapter therefore even as through the obedience of one man the many were set down the disobedience of one man the many were set down as sinners in this manner then through the obedience of one the obedience of christ the many will be established as righteous because god determines what is righteous your sin doesn't matter of course, the obedience of one is the obedience of Christ. The disobedience of one was the disobedience of Adam. So Paul concludes, and he says, Moreover, law entered in addition that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, favor exceeded beyond measure, that just as sin reigned in death, so then favor shall reign through justice for life eternal, through Yahshua Christ our Lord. So man shall live forever in spite of the judgments of the law. In spite of them. Therefore, we must endeavor to be consistent with these teachings in relation to our interpretations of any other scripture, because man was created to be immortal. Because Yahweh God will not fail. And because every Adamic spirit will live forever. Since that is how Yahweh designed it from the beginning. The Bible is the story of how Yahweh God succeeds in fulfilling his purpose. And not how we succeed in fulfilling our own purpose. We may strive to please him. And for that, we may have a greater reward in the end. But in the end, it is not our purpose which needs to be fulfilled as our striving to please him or our failure to please him fulfills his purpose for us in spite of whatever we may desire. The Bible doesn't revolve around us. It revolves around the plan of God for us. And in the end, we will comply to him. So where Joshua Christ spoke in parables and warnings, which describe punishment in hellfire, the Greek word is really a Hebrew word, Gehenna. It is not Hades, or the lake of fire, where death, hell, the beast, and the false prophet are destroyed, as it is described in Revelation. Rather, Gehenna is the Hellenized form of a Hebrew term referring to the ancient land of Henam, the Valley of the Son of Hinnom, where the ancient Israelites had sacrificed their children in the fires of Moloch, as we may read in Second Kings chapter twenty-three or in Jeremiah chapter seven. And thirty-two. In Jeremiah chapter 19, we read, Thus saith Yahweh, Go and get a potter's earthen bottle, and take of the ancients of the people, and of the ancients of the priests, and go forth unto the valley of the Son of Hinnom, which is by the entry of the east gate, and proclaim there the words that I shall tell thee. And say, Hear ye the word of Yahweh, O kings of Judah, and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring evil upon this place. The which whosoever heareth, his ears shall tingle, because they have forsaken me, and have estranged this place, and have burned incense in it unto other gods, whom neither they nor their fathers have known, nor the kings of Judah and have filled this place with the blood of innocents, innocent people, children, if you go see Jeremiah chapter 7 or 32 or Second Kings chapter 23. They have built also the high places of Baal to burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings unto Baal, which I commanded not, nor spoke it, neither came it into my mind. Therefore, behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that this place shall be no more called Tophet, nor the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. And I will make void the counsel of Judah and Jerusalem in this place, and I will cause them to fall by the sword before their enemies, and by the hands of them that seek their lives. And their carcasses will I give to be meat for the fowls of heaven and for the beasts of the earth. So there it may be evident in that passage that Gehenna, the land of Hinnom, is a specific reference which represents temporal punishment for sin, but not necessarily the destruction of the eternal spirits of men. Of the same sort of punishment, Paul of Tarsus wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and he said, For another foundation no one is able to place besides that which is established, which is Joshua Christ. Now if anyone builds upon that foundation in their temporal life, gold, silver, precious stones, timber, fodder, straw, the work of each will become evident, Indeed, the day will disclose it, because in fire it is revealed. And of what quality the work of each is, the fire will scrutinize. If the work of anyone who is built remains, he will receive a reward. If the work of anyone burns completely, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be preserved, although consequently through fire. And therefore, a man without good works the spirit of that man is saved. And in spite of his sin, although having no reward for good works, he may very well be resurrected to everlasting content. Likewise, Peter had written of the fiery trials that would be faced by Christians and sinners alike, where he warned in chapter 4 of his epistle, his first epistle, beloved, do not be astonished by the burning among you taking place for a trial for you, as if a strange thing is happening to you. But just as you partake in the sufferings of Christ, you rejoice, in order that also in the revelation of his honor, exulting you would rejoice. If you are reproached in the name of Christ, you are blessed because the honor and the spirit of Yahweh rest upon you. For not any among you must suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler in the, in the matters of others. But if, as a Christian, you must not be ashamed, but you must honor Yahweh by this name, because the time of judgment is to begin for the house of Yahweh. But if first for us, in reference to the time of judgment, what is the end for those who are disobedient to the good message of Yahweh? However, all men who have eternal life will not enjoy such life in the same way. And some may spend it in misery. So in Daniel chapter 2 we read, And at that time shall Michael stand up the great prince which stands for the children of thy people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered. Every one that shall be found written in the book. The entire race of Adam is written in the book. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. So perhaps everlasting contempt is the reward of those whom shall have no reward, because all their works are burned in the fire, as Paul of Tarsus had explained. Perhaps it is a fate even more miserable than that. However, in order to be resurrected to everlasting content, one must nevertheless have everlasting life. On the other hand, the repentant and obedient have a greater reward, of which Paul had written in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where he said, But as it is written, Eye is not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God had prepared for them that love him. There he had quoted Isaiah chapter 64, verse 4. So putting these three passages together, which are all visions of the trials which Christians would undergo, and the sort of resurrection they would have. We see in Peter that Christians would suffer along with sinners in the fiery trials of this life. We see in Paul that a man's works throughout those trials, throughout that life, will be burned in that fire. And if anything remains, that man will have a reward. But we see in Daniel that some men will awaken to the reward of everlasting life, and some men to everlasting contempt. To have everlasting contempt, you must still be eternal, otherwise, your contempt wouldn't be everlasting. In any case, here it must be said that Edamic eternity should be the greatest discovery in the life of the Christian. An Edamic man, the promise of Edamic eternity, reading the scriptures, should be our greatest discovery. An Edamic man should be absolutely thrilled and even relieved to hear this gospel truth, thereby having a far better understanding of the true liberty which is in Christ. But as Paul had explained in Romans chapter 6 and 7, we do not sin because we have the grace of God. Rather, we seek to be obedient even more stridently because we have the grace of God. However, that is also why it is important to forgive one's brethren of their own sins, because we shall live with them forever. And forever is a long time to bear the guilt of not having loved them in this life. For that reason, we see in the response of Christ, where Peter had asked him how many times he should forgive a brother, that he answered him and said, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven, as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 18. Later in that chapter, there is a parable of a servant forgiven his debts, who in turn failed to forgive his fellow servants of their debts. So he was called back before his master, and he was punished for what he himself had originally been forgiven. Where, in conclusion, Christ had said to those who were listening, So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if you from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. In the fleshly desire, to see one's fellow Adamic man destroyed in the fires of hell for some sin, no matter how grievous. A man shall not be forgiven his own sins. Rather, the appropriate response would be to pray for the repentance of one's fellows, exhorting God to save them in spite of their sins. We may still be able to add many more proofs to the assertions which we have made here from the words of the Psalms and the Prophets and the Apostles of Christ. But this outline should be enough to understand the proper Christian position concerning the Adamic Spirit and eternal life. Once it is understood... Once word problems such as the difference between Hades and Gehenna are sorted out, there are very few contentions which could possibly be raised, as the narrative is consistent with all these scriptures and many more. There are no scriptures which can somehow prove these scriptures to be wrong, because the word of God does not fail. And seeking to do so, seeking to find scriptures that turn other scriptures into lies or prove them wrong, is evidence that one does not have a proper approach to scripture in the first place. Every word of God is true. And if there seems to be a conflict, the conflict is usually in the poor understanding of the reader or perhaps the translator and occasionally with an ancient scribe. But deeper study will always resolve the matters of difference. Always. If you're an Adamic man, you live forever. If you're not an Adamic man, have a nice life. Beyond this one, there is no other. That's just the way it is. Your origin is your destiny. That's the truth. That's the truth of God, and there is no way around it. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.